Welcome to Friends and Fiction, four New York Times bestselling authors, endless stories. Novelists Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, Christy Woodson Harvey, and Patty Callahan Henry are four longtime friends with more than 70 published books between them. Together, they host Friends and Fiction with author interviews and fascinating insider talk about publishing and writing to highlight and support independent bookstores. They discuss the books they've written, the books they're reading now, and the art of storytelling. If you love books and you're curious about the writing world, you're in the right place. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Friends and Fiction Show. I am Patty Callahan Henry. I'm Kristen Harmel. And this is the Friends and Fiction Show with four New York Times bestselling authors, endless stories to support indie bookstores, authors, and librarians. On this week's show, we are so excited because Kristen and I are thrilled to welcome New York Times bestselling author, Abbott Kaler, to discuss her new novel, Where You End, which is inspired by a true story of identical twins and amnesia. It was just released on January 16th, and we are thrilled to discuss it with her. Well, and you've been talking about this book for a while, Patty. I've been so excited. I know you've yep. known Abbott for a long time. So I'm super excited to dive in with you today. So, but first, a quick reminder to check out all the fun things going on in our Friends in Fiction community at friendsinfiction.com. There you will find our show schedule, details on upcoming in-person events, and links to our bookshop.org page, the Friends in Fiction official book club with Brenda and Lisa, our merch store, our book subscription box, and our weekly email newsletter sign-up. In other words, if you want to know more about anything Friends and Fiction offers, and as you can see, we offer a lot, be sure to check out friendsandfiction.com. And after we talk with Abbott at the end, so stay to the end, we will <laughs> tell you some of our episodes coming up, some fun things going on with our newsletter. But this is an episode that I've been looking forward to for months. Abbott is one of my must-read authors, and this is her debut novel. And she is so wise and funny and talented. In this episode, we'll dive into the novel as well as her writing process and her life. Abbott is the author of four New York Times bestselling works of narrative nonfiction under the name Karen Abbott. USA Today once named her a pioneer of sizzle history. I wish I somebody would call me a pioneer I know, of sizzle history. Right? That's amazing. <laughs> Abbott's books have been featured as Indie Next Fix, Amazon's Best Books of the Year, Library Journal's Best Books of the Year, and Smithsonian Magazine's Best History Books of the Year. She has also been a finalist for the Edgar Award for Best Fact Crime, the Goodreads Book Award for History, and the Ohioana Book Awards at the second oldest state literary prize in the country. Where does she put all of those? Does she have like a award room? Do you think? I, right? Or like, Wonder. yes, no, I know. Like, I know. Maybe, maybe when she pops on screen, the shelves behind her will just be just lined be with all of words. her hardware. Exactly. I know, right? <laughs> she has written for New York Magazine, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, Smithsonian Magazine, and many others. She has appeared on the History Channel, CBS Sunday Morning. I saw that one. <laughs> AMC's Making of the Mob, the Discovery Channel, and so much more. Her books have been optioned for television and film, and her podcast about George Remus, The Mad Bootleg King, is being produced by iHeartRadio. 
That's fascinating. Abbott is a native of Philadelphia, where she spent six years as a journalist covering crime, advocating for abused women, and hanging out with mafia bosses and baseball wives. Same, same. Same, same. same, same. Yep. They're both a little high maintenance. Yep. (laughs) She lives in New York City and in Greenport, New York, where she is convinced that her little bungalow is haunted. It probably is. It probably is. And I know that Abbott and I would be great friends upon reading this final piece of her bio, which is that she appreciates a good poker hand, an old bottle of wine, and the never-ending hunt for new stories to tell. Now, let's talk to Abbott instead of about her. Hi, Hi, Patty. Of course, I'm so happy to be here with you guys today. I've been really looking forward to this. We are so happy you're joining us. There is so much to talk about, so I'm going to dive right in. Your starred Publishers Weekly review, and by the way, you were also on the cover, full page of Abbott, <laughs> says that you never put a foot wrong and readers will be wrapped. And I couldn't agree more. So here we go. Welcome to the intricate, disquieting world of the Bird Twins, where one sister's lies send the other back to a dangerous pass. It all starts when Catbird wakes from a coma and sees her mirror image, Jude, her twin sister. Cat remembers nothing except Jude, her sister. Now Jude must take on the momentous task of rebuilding their past, piece by piece. But as the months progress, Cat begins to fear that maybe, just maybe, their childhood wasn't nearly as idyllic as Jude is making her believe. So Abbott, you have always had a wild imagination and it's one of my favorite things about you, but I need to know where did this idea come from, both in history and your life? What was the inspiration for this novel? Well, thank you once again for having me. And I will um, just say that like all of my books, you know, I, I find inspiration in fact. And this was no different. Um, in 2019, I watched a really, really fascinating documentary called Tell Me Who I Am. Um, it tells the story of identical uh, twins, Marcus and Alec, Alex Lewis. Um, they were uh, identical twins in, in Britain. And in when um, Alex was 18 years old, he suffered a really traumatic accident on his motorcycle, um, had a traumatic brain injury. Um, and when he awakened from his coma, the only memories he had were his brother's face and name. Um, As you can imagine, this was, you know, yeah, I mean, his entire history, all of his memories, all of their past interactions with other people, no family, all of it gone. And um, you can imagine how terrifying this was for him. Um, And he really depended on his brother, uh, the only person he remembered to start rebuilding his identity and his memories and sort of giving back everything that he had lost. Um, And Marcus, though, sees in this in this tragedy, he sees an opportunity and he is going to give them a life that they never actually lived. Um, and here's a, a picture. I'm describing it. Um, I know there are some podcast listeners. So uh, I'm showing a picture of Marcus and Al Lewis. Um, you can see that they are quite identical. Um, and it was it was a really sort of fascinating documentary. And I, it, it started spinning the wheels of my imagination. Um, and it also made me think about my mom and her identical twin. Um, my mom and her sister are Catherine and Judith, um, just like the twins in the book. Um, 
<laughs> and they uh, they are actually um, mirror twins, which is this rare phenomenon oh. when the embryo splits later than usual. Kathy is a, a, a former, um, I'm sorry, Patty is a former nurse. You would probably be interested in, you know, that, that whole Crazy. phenomenon. But so the embryo splits later than usual. And um, which means that uh, my mom was right-handed. My aunt was left-handed. They're, uh, their hair part on different sides. And when they looked at each other, it was really akin to looking in a mirror because they had the opposite reflection. Um, And here for the podcast listeners, I'm holding up a picture of my mom and her identical twin. Um, As you can see, this is is not a Diane Arbus outtake. It is my mom and her twin sister. Wow, Uh, It looks like a double image, like it got folded in on itself. Exactly. Exactly. And I began wondering, you know, so so here's this unique bond. You know, everybody knows identical twins have this unique bond. What do you do when the person, the only person in the world who you can trust, because everybody else is now uh, sort of a mystery to you, yeah. you know, starts lying, starts lying to you and yes. starts telling you untruths. And, and what does that feel like? And how far would, you know, what would my mom have done in this situation? What would my aunt have done in this situation? How far would they have gone to betray each other or mislead each other or save each other or whatever the motivation was um what would they have done and um so that i really took that in with me um, into the book and as well as just some of the really interesting parts about their twin connection you know there's a a language in the book that's a very secret twin language that is based on the language that my mom and her twin spoke uh when they were little kids so um i i sort of gobbled up everything i could from their relationship and put it into cat and jude in the book Wow. Well, that's actually a great jumping off point for my question, which, you know, when I was starting to read this book, I was struck by how um, how different the two seem from the outset, even though Kat doesn't quite know who she is yet, right? Like she's still trying to figure yeah. out who she is. So for us to get to know these bird twins better, let's say we're at a dinner party. How would you introduce each one? Just kind of a quick little capsule description of who Kat and Jude are. Oh, that's such an interesting question. I would say Jude is the dark and mysterious one and Kat is the dark and lively one. <laughs> I like that. Oh I like God. that a lot. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. They okay. both, I think they share a, a, a core a, a core self, but they, they portray it in different ways. That's yeah. really interesting. Okay. Now for extra credit, your bonus question. How in the world would you introduce their mother at a dinner party? Oh God! <laughs> right? You know, okay. I have to admit that she's also based on the real person, kind oh. of. I thought about Gypsy Rose Lee's mother, Mama Rose, on okay. Broadway. The the sort of um, stage mother who wants her children to shine, but is much more interested in the spotlight being on her. To be honest, um, and she's very flamboyant, wow. and probably one of those people, obviously, who should never have had children. Um, she seemed to be doing just well for herself and very, very, very pleased with her progress in life until she had children. And then she didn't quite know what to do. And I, I don't think she's, I think she has her issues. I think she loved them in her own warped, inadequate way. Yeah. Um, but just like with Mama Rose and Gypsy, I, I think there was, there's, you know, a lot of trauma there that Mama Rose probably had. And, and one of the things in the book is generational trauma, how that is passed down and absorbed from one uh, generation to the next. And, and, you know, I, I do think that, um, her, the twin, the twins, Jude and Kat were not unscathed by whatever had happened yeah. to their mother and in, in, in her past. Absolutely. 
for those of you who don't yet know what she's talking about, and we will dive into some of your narrative <laughs> nonfiction in a second, but oh. Abbott has written a book called American Rose that is that is about the people she's talking about. So, all right. Literature has this very long history of twin stories and characters, but it's not just a twin story. Where You End is very much a love story between sisters. So I want you to talk to us about the research for Mirror Twins, not just your family or photos. What did you discover in your research about Mirror Twins? You know, I one of the questions that's always interested me about twins, Mirror, identical twins in particular, and Mirror Twins, um, is the way that regardless of, of you know, their own personal um interests or were they 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 seem to just follow a trajectory where they parallel one another um, yes. and of course this is proved in a lot of studies where identical twins are separated at birth and suddenly when they reunite there's all kinds of some strange similarities you know they have children that are named the same thing they pursued similar careers no way um <laughs> even if they didn't know each other oh yeah oh yeah there's tons oh. of studies about this and my mom and her twin, just to go back to them for a minute, they were the same. They were both emergency room nurses. They both smoked the same brand of cigarettes. They played the same kind of slot machines. Wow. Um, they both, they both uh, had the same number of children. They both had similar husband experiences. Wow. Um, and and I always wonder, is this a subconscious thing that you know? Is this a subconscious guiding them, or do they deliberately make these decisions? Do they feel compelled? To make these decisions so that they don't deviate from each other like is, is the twin bond that special and unique that they need to um prioritize it at all times or does it just naturally happen because that's where their that's where their personality lies um and it just seems that uh that was something that was really fascinating to me uh and and i tried to put a little bit of that in with cat and jude you know they do have similar interests they do have similar pro uh, proclivities i should say um, but I wanted to very much to make each of them their, her own person. So. It wow. kind of begs the idea that we're born with a compass, right? Yeah. Uh, like we come out who we are. Like, was I always going to be a nurse and then a writer? Was I always going to marry at least someone like Pat Henry? Right. Yeah. Like there's, right. it begs this whole, how, how much is built into our coding, our DNA, our compass. Yes. I, it's, Fascinating. It's fascinating. Sure. It's it's nature versus nurture. I mean, it's yeah, like yeah. the age old like endless question. And um and I very much wonder, you know, if Cat and Jude didn't have the upbringing that they had, would they have gone the path that I take in the book? Um and I, I, another personal aside, you know, during writing this, um, in terms of nature versus nurture, I found out that my bio my the man who raised me was not my father. Um oh, wow. so yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, but you I didn't know that. I you had didn't... no idea. I had no idea. 23andMe, test came back. I had a half sister. Can of worms is open. Oh, um, wow. And so Chills. I really started, started to think about nature versus nurture. Um, and what did I get from this man who I've never met and unfortunately will never meet because he, he passed away in 2012. Oh. But I, you know, anything I could find out about him, I immediately just started to, to dig and dig and dig. And, um, and so I really, it's a question that I'm still grappling with. Of course, it's kind of a life-changing uh, yes. <laughs> revelation, but, but I thought about it a lot when I was writing the book too, and, and kind of, you know, how much of our compass and how much of Jude and Kat's compass was really 
driving what they did and, and how much of it was just the situation that they were put in, which of course is a very extreme situation. You know, I think when our, the things that we are wrestling with as people are intertwined with the books we're writing, it gives us that much more access to those characters and those stories. And it just makes the books that much richer and deeper. And, and I know just from the critical acclaim that this book has already gotten, um, that people are really sensing that they're feeling that. I mean, that seems to sort of be that this book is different. It's it, it, it stands alone in a very different way. And I wonder if maybe that's part of it, that you put so much of yourself and so much of what was going on in your oh, own heart at the time. You're very kind it. to say that. I, I, I think it, I really appreciate you saying that. I think it's also just that I, um, I was, I'm not used to just making things up, you know, I'm not used to it. It wasn't my, yeah. it wasn't, has been my path for the, my entire professional career as a, as a writer and um, making the leap from nonfiction to fiction was really scary. I mean, I bow down to you guys. Like I think well, fiction, as like, we so do to you, yes, likewise. So, yeah. <laughs> no, I, I just think, I think fiction is so much harder, you know, in nonfiction, it's impossible to write the bad dialogue. You know, you can't write <laughs> bad dialogue. It is all there in the historical record. You can't make a bad plot turn. Like you, you know, your narrative is already written out for you. You, you can't sort of make a dumb decision. Um, you know, that said, you know, the dead people don't always do what you want them to do. They're stubborn, uh, you know, and, and, you know, world events are annoyingly immovable. You can't really change chronology. Um, but fiction, God, fiction is thrillingly liberating, but terrifying. And there's so many wrong t- paths you can take and so many bad choices and all of the dialogue, if it sucks, it's your own fault. Um, <laughs> so it's, I really, I, you know, I had a lot of fun writing this book. My God, it's, it's really scary. It's a really scary job. And again, I, I bow down and I admire both of you so much. I feel the exact same way about nonfiction, but yep. for those yeah. listeners and watchers out there, viewers out there um, who are not familiar with your nonfiction, you have written Sin in the Second City, American Rose, Liar, Temptress, Soldier, Spy, and The Ghosts of Eden Park, all of which, by the way, are amazing titles. Like you're so good at coming oh. up with titles. <laughs> I, don't th- I, I, don't, I don't know if I can take credit for all of them, but but thanks. Yeah, they 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 worked. I guess that well, they are. Uh, it, it, they all sound incredible, and I know um, from what Patty has said that they're fantastic books. I cannot wait to dive in. But I'm curious. You talked a little bit about the difference between the two, but what made you decide it was time to write a novel? You know, I always wanted to write a novel. I've been writing fiction my whole life. Um, God, I th- as I think I've mentioned to you guys previous to this. Uh, you know, I started when I was about ten or eleven, sending story submissions to Ellery Queen and Alfred Hitchcock. <laughs> uh, mystery magazines. The one I remember most vividly was called Tea with Mr. Roper. Um, oh my goodness. And it's basically was a story about this elderly widow who really had nobody to talk to. She was very lonely. And every day, the highlight of her day was sitting down for tea with Mr. Roper, her neighbor. Um, and she talked about her day and her dreams and her past and her husband who was dead and all of her friends who had died. And poor Mr. Roper couldn't get a word in edgewise. He just was this saintly, patient man just listening to her every day. And of course, oh, at, the end of the story, at the end of the story, it's revealed that Mr. Roper is actually a decaying corpse in her pantry that she trots out oh every day God. for tea. Um and she had killed him just so she could have a companion. And she just brings him out every day <laughs> and, and talks to him. Um, and shockingly, shockingly, Tea with Mr. Roper was never published anywhere. Um, 
shocking. I'm sure, I'm sure, you know, the editors of Alfred Hitchcock and Ellery Queen are ruining the day that they rejected Tea with Mr. Roper, but um, probably. Yes, yeah. I've always loved fiction and I sort of accidentally became a journalist uh, and then went on from there. That's oh, hilarious. Okay. <laughs> okay, so for those of you watching and listening, she's talking about our newsletter interview where she talked about this. So if you're not subscribing to the newsletter, you're missing out on a bunch of stuff. <laughs> All right, we're going to go back to the twins. And where we end, we realize immediately or soon that something isn't quite right while Jude tells Kat about their life. But we can't put our finger on it. And so that's why we're turning the pages like this. And there's a great amount of tension as we try and discover what it is that is being kept from Kat as she recovers. The twists, the turns, oh my gosh. So how much did you know? In other words, do you plot or see to your pants? Oh God, this is, a, I, I love this discussion among novelists because I'm so fascinated by the pantsers yep. versus the plots. And again, I, if, if either of you pants it, uh, my hat, hat's off once again, oh, because no. I cannot do it. <laughs> Me um, neither. You know, yeah, I am a voracious outliner. In fact, my outlines for my nonfiction books have often been longer than the books themselves. I think oh, my last wow. my last nonfiction outline was 110,000 words, and <gasps> the book ended up being oh about 93. And uh, so I am a I am just an intrepid outliner. I will get every single detail, and I tried to do this with where you end. I really tried to outline everything, but. You know, unlike my nonfiction books, Kat and Jude started talking back to me and in this outline. Ah. And they were like, no, 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 dumbass, no, <laughs> this is not happening. This is not what I would do. And in a way that, the, you know, my, my dead real people who had lived would not speak back to me. Um, so they were quite insolent uh, and had That's their awesome. own their own ideas about what they should be doing. So. I did have a, an outline and I did follow some of it, but I had to be very adaptable and, and sort of listen to what they wanted me to do. And, um, and, and eventually I started feeling like I was just recording their story rather than oh. telling it. And so it became a little bit more comfortable for me because I, I, you know, I feel like I'm a recorder of, of historical stories. You know, I try to write them in the most lively narrative possible, but it's really just recording what happened in history. Um, and eventually it felt like, well, recording what happened to these two fictional people who I made up, but it felt real to me. So when you're doing that, did you stick to your outline for the most part? Like, did you know, well, I'm not going to do any spoilers, but did you know some of the biggest moments and then just let them speak to you inside those big moments? Yeah, I think that's okay. fair. I, I had I had big like plot points I wanted to happen. I just had to decide how to get there. Yeah. Um, okay. And I had to decide what the aftermath would have been. Like there there were a couple of things, especially with um Kat's romance. You know, she right. she's very excited to have this this new romance, which to her is her very first romance, her yeah. very first romantic experience, her first kiss, her first everything. You know, she's twenty two years old and feels like she's never been kissed. Um and so I, I did do all of that. I, and I did know how I wanted it to end, but the ending is purposely a little bit ambiguous. And t I don't even know what happened. Oh. Like I don't, I don't, I, I, it's ambiguous in my head and it's ambiguous on the page. And I hope that readers appreciate that because um, when you have a novel filled with deceit, you know, sort of loving deceit in a way, 
I, I wanted that to carry through the end and be switched a little bit. So, you know, the mm -hmm. deceit, you know, the deceitful person changes. Um, and, and I really wanted that to be a sort of a mysterious ending um, that was befitting so the rest good. of the book. Oh. Ooh, that so is good. fascinating. All right. Now, Abbott, I see so much in this novel about the question of identity. Who are we if we lose our memories? Who are we if we can't pin down our life to moments and people? Is there a true essence of who we are inside or are we only made of what has happened to us? Um, and I know we talked about that a little bit um, in terms of nature versus nurture, but do you feel like you were trying to answer some of these ultimately probably unanswerable questions as you worked on this book? Yeah, I, I really did. And I debated quite a bit um, about should Jude lie to Kat also, in addition to all the lies she already tells, should she also lie to Kat about who Kat had been? Um, mm -hmm. Because, you know, and I thought ultimately, ultimately, probably not because she wants her sister back. She wants her sister back the same way she was, but with a different understanding of their history. Um, and so I didn't think it would be something Jude would do to be like, oh, Kat, you weren't so lively. You didn't enjoy parties. You, you didn't enjoy people. You were just a recluse who sat in a room all day and, and read books and didn't talk to anyone. Um, and it was important to me that Jude, you know, have an essence of, of honesty about, about her yeah. mission. And so she really wanted her sister back, but um, she wanted her sister back in a way that was that was, um, I guess, the loveliest version of what her sister oh, like could that. be. And mm -hmm. um, and so that was really important to me. And I, I really did wrestle with that a long time because people had said, oh, wouldn't it be twisty if Jude was like, you know, told Kat lies about who she actually is. And I was like, twisty, but gimmicky. You know, I, I didn't think yeah. that that's what, that's, I didn't think what that's what identical twins who were as close as they had been would do. Yeah, to each very other. good point. Yeah, yeah, good point. Okay, in this novel, there is something called the plan, which is kind of a new age cult. I'm always fascinated by cults. And so I'm dying to know, was it based on a real cult or did you just take an amalgam? What, where did this plan come from? Um, that's a really interesting question. And uh, another area where I had some fun doing some actual research um, which okay. was the plan, the plan is inspired by, um, EST, which was a big, ah, okay. uh, Werner Earnhardt and his training seminars, Earnhardt training seminars as EST. Later it was rebranded as a kinder, gentler cult called the forum. Um, actually some people wouldn't call it a cult. It's a, it's sort of a, something that business people actually still do today. And they, they think it's a, it's a power of positive thinking. It was kind of a, a mix of, um, Zen Buddhism and like Dale Carnegie. You know, like the, the, how to influence and influence people and and also like make a lot of money and be successful. Um, and but also you're very Zen with yourself and you're you're thinking positive thoughts all the time. So it was it was definitely inspired by that. Um, EST had had seminars in the 70s. It was very popular. Celebrities actually joined um, EST. And I, I actually name checked some of them, some of them in the book that actually were involved in this in this group. Um, and, you know, they, at the time, it was just one of many sort of self-improvement movements that were sweeping the country. The early, the early 70s was ripe with this kind of stuff. And it really just felt like the, the you know, an accurate thing to put in that time period and that time and place and with those people. Oh. Yeah. 
It was so creepy. And I'm always fascinated looking at like how really genius people fall for these cults and become part of it. Um, Some of them all the way to not in your novel, but to taking their own life. It's just, it's always, and you're already playing with memory and mind. So well done. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah. And it was, it's sort of, you know, it, I mean, it goes all the way to the secret and Oprah and all of that. It, it's sort of the idea that if, if you experience the feelings that you're having in your current moment and your current thought patterns, you can sort of reframe them. Um, and so all of that was, was born in these movements. Uh, and, um, and of course, you know, just ancient philosophy that's just wrapped up in pretty modern packaging. Um, or at least 70s packaging. So. 70s, yeah. It, it's yeah. so interesting listening to you talk about this because I can see the brain of a nonfiction writer at work, like writing fiction in, in a really, really good way. Like this is, it, it's fascinating to hear about the research that became something completely different here. Um, but I wanted to ask you about something else. Poker playing is a big part of this novel <laughs> in scenes where yeah. Kat is trying to find herself again. Um, those moments are so vivid. And we know from your bio that you play poker. So I have been known to play a bit of five card stuff oh, myself. Oh, are so you I challenging am, I, me? <laughs> Come on up to New York. I have, a, I have a monthly game going. You got to come in. Oh, come fantastic. In. Challenge accepted. I will be there. Okay. <laughs> so I am particularly interested in knowing about your background in poker and how it worked its way into the book. Can you tell us a little bit about that and why it was kind of the right thing to give to Kat? Yeah, it's a it's a great question. And um, it, it also comes from my family. My mom and her twin were gambling, oh, gambling wow. people. They, um, their favorite thing to do was to go down to Atlantic City and play oh the video gosh. poker. Um, they played video poker. Uh, it was their, you know, they, they went to the casino every chance they could get. It was the most fun they ever had together. And um, to and to, not to go down too much on a sad note, but um, when my aunt passed away, she was only 52. Oh. And um, my mom, when my aunt had um, one of their trips, had found the Queen of Hearts playing card on the on the po- casino floor and picked it up and thought it would be good luck for her. And when she passed away, my mom put it in her casket. Oh, um, and so it always, uh, their connection, their love of, of poker, their love of gambling, um, they were always game people. They would try to write advertisements for Virginia Slims and get them win the contest for the captionings. <laughs> and they just were very competitive people. Um, and it was, you know, it, my mom in the face of that incredible, devastating tragedy of lo- losing her twin at such a young age, um, I, I never saw her be so strong as when she put that card in the casket. And uh, oh, it just really, I, I wanted to honor that tradition between them too, in a, in a way. I love that. Yeah. All right. I'm just thinking about having a twin and losing them. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <clears throat> I, I want to talk about Wicked History for a minute because it is such a fantastic newsletter and Facebook oh, page. Thank you that you send out where you write about wicked cold cases in history. Every time you post one, I write to you and say, there's a novel. And you're always like, yeah, (laughs) sure, Patty, but I got to figure out what happened to them. So have you always had a passion for history? Have you always followed this kind of thing? Or where did this come from? It's, it's It's really interesting. Oh, thanks. And where do you find these? Oh God. Um, okay. So, so I, you know, I, I accidentally, after my adventures with Mr. Roper, I became a journalist. Um, and, and, 
you know, then started and, you know, wrote about the baseball wives and the mafia bosses, which was a lot of fun. Um, and there are very many similarities between them, Kristen. I should, I should say you were correct at that. Um, and I, uh, you know, when I became a book writer, when I started writing um, book-length fiction, I was inspired by a story my grandmother had told me. Um, so her mother and her mother's sister had emigrated from Slovenia in 1905. Um, and the sister went to Chicago one weekend and was never heard from again. Um, and so I was always oh my gosh. haunted. Yeah, it was, it was a family mystery. My grandmother always talked about it. Um, she was intrigued oh. and haunted by this. Nobody knew what had happened to this woman. Um, and I started looking into what was going on in Chicago in 1905. Um, I did not find out anything about my missing ancestor, but I did hear about Minna and Ada Everlay, who ran the world's most lavish, famous brothel called the Everlay Club in Chicago in the early 1900s. And of course, I forgot all about my missing relative <laughs> and was much more, much more interested in these two Southern sisters, very genteel, who ended up running this brothel that, that in a way changed American history. So um, that's where my love of history came from. And from there, I just thought, oh, my God, there are all these stories, especially stories about women. You know, women have always been written out of history. Yes. And, I, and it was, I felt like it was a, almost like a, a calling to just like dig them up. You know, I want to dig these women yeah. up and give them their spotlight. And, and you know, most of my books are in somewhat one way or another spotlight the incredible accomplishments or dastardly deeds of, of women from history. So that's that's really where that all that came from. How do people um, sign up for that newsletter, Wicked History? Can you tell? Oh, us? you can go on my uh, my website, abbotkaler.com. And there should be a pop-up for signing up uh, on there. Um, I have been remiss lately. You know, I, I, I think I owe another, I should at least send a newsletter out saying I'm going on tour. You know, yes, uh, you so, should. But, <laughs> still have time. But, but yeah, I just really mo recently moved it to Substack. It had been, and so I'm really just kicking it into gear, but I hope to start doing it more regularly uh, in 2024. That's awesome. one of my resolutions too. I have been terrible about <laughs> sending newsletters out. That's something I need to do better. It's work. Well, it's work. It is. It it's is. work. When yes. you could be writing on your book, yes, right? Like, exactly. It's, it's always a juggling, right? The Because you're so good on Instagram and, and Facebook too, Abbott. So like, oh. how do you make, put your time here, but you have yeah. to do your research, but exactly. you want to talk to readers and then you have to go on the road. So Exactly. And you have to feed your parrot, you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There are making never, noise over here. Never <sighs> enough hours in the day. I will never. tell you. Well, no. Abbott, what an incredible conversation. Um, we have been so happy to get to talk to you. This was everything I imagined it would be. You were so interesting. Oh, thank you. But and you guys asked the smartest, was, best questions I have to just say. So thank you for that. Well, I have to hand it to Patty for that. Patty, um, yeah, Patty, Patty really dug deep into this book and, you know, yeah, this has been great. But before you go, I want to ask you something else. I know you're working on something amazing right now. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Yes, it is called When, um, then, sorry, I, I'm getting where you went confused Whatever with my called, nonfiction. Yeah. It's called <laughs> Then Came the Devil. Yeah, Then Came the Devil. Um, it is a true story. This one's nonfiction about a group of uh, people who fled Germany in the years oh. leading up to World War II. They decided they wanted to try to form a utopia on the remote Galapagos Island of Floriana. Um, it went horribly awry, as utopias always do. 
uh, and it turned into kind of an adult Lord of the Flies. There's some death, there's some disappearances, there's lots of really creepy, crazy characters. And honestly, I, I have never had so much fun researching a nonfiction book. I mean, it sounds like a wildly inventive piece of fiction. It's astonishing that it's written. It is stranger than fiction. Yeah. If I tried to write this as a novel, I think, yeah, my publisher would have been like, get out of here. This is too, this is. Right, it's too implausible, but it really happened. No, I I genuinely cannot wait to read it. It's right up my alley. It sounds absolutely wonderful. All right. Can you tell our audience, so our audience can find you at abbottkaler.com. Will you have your tour dates posted there? Are you going to be out on the road? Can you tell us a little bit about where we can find you? I start, um, I'm in New York. I'm in Philly. I go to Boston. I go to Richmond, Virginia. Um, I go to Maryland, just outside of Baltimore. I'm in Atlanta. I am in Oxford, Mississippi. And then long last, I am with the beloved, my beloved Patty Callahan Henry um, at Little Professor in Birmingham, Alabama in the beginning of February. I think it's February, February 8th. Yes. 8th. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. All right. Perfect. And how about on social media? How can we find you there? Um, at Abbotkaler, A-B-B-O-T-T-K-A-H-L-E-R. And uh, that will get you to Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, um, all of it. So I would love to connect Perfect. more with your many, many legions of fans. And again, thank you so much for having me. Oh, Abbott, this has been a delight. And I hope everyone runs out and grabs this debut novel, even though it's not a debut work. So is your is your new narrative nonfiction going to be written under Carrot Abbott? Or Abbott Kaler? I think I'm just going to keep with Abbott Kaler from now on. I, okay. Because it's because then came the devil's going to come out almost a year later. And it would just yes. seem would be it would be weird to pivot like that close. Yep. Um, and start so over almost. Hoping. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm just I'm just going to I think I'm going full speed ahead. And it's my legal name. It's it's been my legal name for uh, many years, 10 years. So I'm happy to finally be using it in all facets of my life. Oh, that's amazing, Abbott. That's amazing. Thank you so much for coming. And thank you so much for being with us on Friends in Fiction. Thank you, guys. You're amazing. Well, we love you. And for all of you watching and listening out there, now that you've had the pleasure of meeting Abbott, we encourage you to rush out and buy your copies of Where You End. The perfect place to do that is in the Friends in Fiction shop on bookshop.org. You'll be getting it at a discount and helping to fund our show, all while supporting independent booksellers. All right, guys, that's it for this week. But before we go, we'd like to remind you to follow us on Instagram and join our Facebook group that's nearly a quarter million members strong. And Abbott, they will be posting all kinds of questions under this video. Oh my God, so I will if you want to sure. pop by and see I them. Definitely. Yeah, I follow you guys everywhere, but I, I will make sure I pop in. And, and yes, thank you. Hey. And when you visit friendsandfiction.com, you can stay abreast of all upcoming shows, in-person events, shop our merch store, order our book subscription box, which has four books in it this year, and sign up for our weekly email letter that is chock full of bonus content. And to all of our viewers and listeners, thank you for tuning in. If you love the Friends in Fiction show, we hope you will leave a rating or review and remember to tell a friend. If you subscribe to our YouTube channel, you can catch all of our back episodes and you'll never miss a thing. And when you subscribe to our podcast, you can listen in your car, while you do dishes, while you go grocery shopping, while you work out, while you do anything. It is like Friends and Fiction in your pocket. You can take us with you wherever you go. <laughs> 
And we are now having extra content in a Substack mm-hmm. newsletter. And Abbott gave us the most fascinating interview that you can read when you sign up for that. But be sure to tune in next week as we welcome Jennifer Mormon to discuss the magic all around. It'll air on the Friends in Fiction Facebook page and YouTube channel on Wednesday, January 31st, and it'll be posted to our podcast for your listening pleasure on Friday, February 2nd. Thank you, everyone, and goodbye. Thanks. Thank you for tuning in. You can join us every week on Facebook or YouTube, where our live show airs on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. Eastern time. Also, subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Instagram. We're so glad you're here.